0: Come to the last of our messages on this focus in evangelism. We'll talk about the Great Commission today. Today we've looked at the call of evangelism. We looked at the cause of evangelism, where the compassion that Jesus had upon the people who were spiritually distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. We looked last week at the confirmation of the of evangelism, which is the content of Of the message that we find in evangelism. The truth about who Jesus is and what it is he has done. In this passage, Jesus asked his disciples who the people said he was, and they said some say John the Baptist, who had already been killed at this point, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, and some one of the prophets who has been raised. And many people had favorable ideas about who Jesus was, yet they had incorrect belief About who Jesus is. And so Jesus turned his attention to these twelve and he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly answered for the group and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And that is the correct explanation of who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of the Living God, and all that is a part of that. Jesus would say about himself, In John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He would say in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. He would say in John 10.7, I am the door. He would say in John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. He would say in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. And he would say in John 14.26, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Any other explanation about the person of Jesus is inaccurate and incomplete. As we've looked at our rudimentary definition of evangelism, it's simply telling anyone anywhere the gospel message. The definition that we're using for the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. And so evangelism begins with telling. We must speak in order to tell the gospel i repeat this every time we've talked about evangelism. And I'll repeat it again. It is impossible to share the gospel without words. We must speak telling someone you believe in god is not sharing the gospel telling someone you are a christian is not sharing the gospel telling someone excuse me inviting someone to church is not sharing the gospel telling someone god bless you or god loves you without explaining the gospel is not sharing the gospel living a clean moral life is not sharing the gospel feeding the hungry clothing the naked sheltering the homeless is not sharing the gospel evangelism is sharing the gospel which is telling anyone anywhere the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how they can come to know Him. If we do not do that, we are not being evangelistic. We are not sharing the gospel. So today we come to the conclusion in our emphasis, and it is very simply the commission. You're not surprised, are you? I certainly hope you're not surprised that this is how we would conclude. In fact, we really could have stayed here and spent the entire four weeks focusing on the truth and the application of what these verses teach us. It's one of the most familiar passages in all of the New Testament and yet one of the most absent practices among Christians today. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Here's what God's Word would say to us today. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the of the age. Now we began in verse 16. I think it's important to do that for a couple of reasons and this is what we're going to look at. The background as to what is going on here. We know as we read each of the four gospel accounts, they vary somewhat in the detail. Not all of them are chronological in the same way. And some gospel accounts include information that the others do not. So as a part of the background, what we need to understand from the end of what we would read in verse 15 to what we read in verse 16, there's a period of time that has elapsed. Jesus has completed His mission. He's died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He has been appearing to many witnesses, most notably the women at the grave and also to His disciples later on. And here we are back in Galilee in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has designated. Now there's a pause here. We would read this and think, well, maybe the next day or later that day, But Jesus instructed His disciples, both before and after the resurrection, that they were to go to Galilee and He would meet with them. We read in Matthew 26, 32, before Jesus was was killed on the cross, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. To the women at the well, in Matthew 28 He says, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to My brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see Me. So Jesus did not immediately go to Galilee it is recorded in John twenty twenty six after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them Jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said Peace be with you. Now what most commentators and biblical scholars will tell you is that after Jesus had given instruction to his disciples to go to Galilee, there was a period of at least eight days as we see here in John. It took about seven days to travel from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee that Jesus had designated to them. At this appearing that we see here recorded in John, he has now been seen by all of his disciples and it is shortly after this that he appears that the disciples then go on to Galilee and that trip would have taken them about a week so after arriving there Jesus appeared to all of them and some of them were fishing they had fished all night They hadn't caught a thing. And from the shore, Jesus calls out to them and says, Cast your net over the right side of the boat. And they do that. And the catch is so large that they cannot haul it into the boat. And we would read in John 21, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Later on, Jesus had breakfast with them on the shore, and it is at this time that Jesus restores Peter back the fellowship. Because after all, it was just a couple of weeks earlier that Peter had denied that he even knew who Jesus was. And so now at this breakfast, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Peter affirms that he does. And Jesus tells him to tend his lambs, to shepherd his sheep, and then to tend his sheep. So it is likely during this time in Galilee that this encounter in Matthew is recorded. This likely is three to five weeks after the resurrection. So they now have assembled in Galilee as Jesus had told them. And here he is appearing to them and the group, this larger group we'll talk about in a second. And then Jesus would later on appear to them in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and it was there that He would ascend into heaven 40 days after His resurrection. So there isn't this concise timeline that we read in in Matthew. So there's this instruction to go to Galilee about 8 days later. Jesus appears to them in Galilee where they cast this net into the sea. They find this large collection of fish. They have this breakfast. Jesus restores Peter. And then sometime later, they go back to Jerusalem and Jesus then ascends back into heaven that's kind of the background that's kind of what has taken place which isn't so obvious to us as we read it through Matthew as it is written for us now back to our passage in verse 16 it says that the 11 disciples are mentioned the 11 disciples are mentioned here judas the traitor is dead matthias has not yet been been installed as an apostle that will come later in the book of Acts, but it is most probable that there are more than just the eleven disciples that are at this gathering on the shore of Galilee when Jesus is appearing to his disciples having breakfast with them and then restoring Peter. There is very likely a much larger group that is there than Matthew identifies in his writing. Many biblical scholars agree that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.6 about the 500 witnesses that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, many of those outside of the select group of disciples and the women and a few others, most of that massive group is likely present here in our passage in Matthew chapter twenty eight, verses sixteen and following. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen six. We were there not many weeks ago. After that he, Jesus, appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now we're told in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus had regathered with the disciples in Jerusalem just before His ascension with the instruction to stay in Jerusalem there and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is very unlikely that it is at this time that there is this massive crowd that is witness, that is now a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So it is very likely that the massive group of people that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually being represented here in Matthew 28, mentioned very, very briefly in verse 16. Now another clue that there is a much larger group present than just the eleven disciples can be attested to by what we would read in verse 17. Verse 17 says, When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. So if we were to think that just the eleven disciples were there, why would they be doubtful? Jesus had appeared to them several times by now. They had seen Him. He appeared out of nowhere, walked through the door, and they were like, well, there's Jesus. So who is the some that were doubtful, and what in fact was it that they were doubtful of? Matthew doesn't explain it to us at all. Jesus had appeared to all of of His disciples several times by now. And for many scholars, the doubters referenced here very loosely would be those of a much larger group than just the eleven who had not yet seen Jesus. Now, as we know from Jesus' ministry, everywhere He went massive groups of people would follow. It wouldn't be a stretch to think that there are the 11 disciples and this marvelous thing has happened when there's such a large catch they can't bring it in to the boat and now there is this campfire on the shore and there's this stranger that kind of looks familiar that is having breakfast with these 11 people that we know and we know who they are and what they've been doing for the last three years. It wouldn't be a stretch Of the imagination to think that there's been a crowd that has gathered that is now a witness of Jesus' resurrection and is also hearing what Jesus is about to say to his disciples. Now it's one of the unanswered questions that are present in this gospel account which is a very honest and a very straightforward account of what actually took place In the presence of Jesus on this day. So in the presence of the disciples and even those who doubted, we turn our attention now to the heart of the matter, the meat of what we're really looking at in the commission. And verse 18a says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, the eleven, and presumably though the other group where some were doubters, and Jesus gives now, number two in our outline, the message. In these two and a half verses, we're going to to see that Jesus speaks volumes about who He is. And that's why we could spend so much time on this. And obviously, we can't really do that this morning. So, three elements that Jesus is going to mention here about who He is. Letter A, we see His authority. Look at what it says here in verse 18b. Jesus says... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is about to give His signature instruction to His disciples. And before He does this, He reinforces His sovereign rule as Lord. Why did He need to do that? What was His purpose in doing that? Is His sovereign rule a secret to his followers. Jesus speaks about his authority and most believe he said this to underscore the importance of their response to what it is Jesus is about to say. It's one thing for a peer, To make some kind of a claim or to make some kind of a statement. It's a much different thing for a known authority to say that very same thing. And so Jesus underscores his authority because he wants their response to match the authority of the one who is speaking the message. So, back up a little bit. What does all authority really mean? When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, what does that really mean? Does it mean a little authority? Does it mean some authority? Does it mean a lot of authority in certain instances? Well, this is one of the times when all means all. All authority, all of the authority that exists in the universe that God has created has been given to Jesus. Absolutely every single bit of authority rests on the person of Christ. He's underscoring His authority in this message that He has given. What is the scope of His authority? Where does this scope actually affect itself in the universe that God has created? He tells us, All authority has been given to me in heaven... The place that we cannot see, the very place where the throne of God is, and the multitudes of angels and saints are now bowing at the throne and worshipping this divine entity, all authority that exists in that place... And all authority that exists in this physical universe that is inhabited by the people that God has created, all of it has been given to Jesus. It leaves nothing out. Every shred of authority that exists in the universe that God has created, that which we can see and that which we cannot see, sits on the lap of Jesus. All authority... Everywhere, all authority in everything has been given to Jesus. This is why Paul would say in Philippians 2, 9, in verses, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. And so by emphasizing his divine authority in heaven on earth on heaven, on earth and in heaven, in effect, Jesus is requiring obedience to what he is about to say, and he is giving them the assurance that they can accomplish what he is telling them to do. Think about that. Jesus is saying, all the authority that exists in heaven and on earth rests in me. It requires your obedience because of who I am. But not only does it require your obedience, it also means that I, Jesus, being this divine entity that rules over everything is ensuring that you can do what I am commanding you to do. Think about that. There are many, many generals, there are many, many military leaders who give to their troops an incredible amount of confidence that they will storm the gate alone. But the general knows they're going to die. They're going to get obliterated. They have no hope individually of accomplishing what the general has sent them to do. That's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus is the one who has all authority given to him. And he says, you can do what I am commanding you to do today. You're not going to go out and get slaughtered, although some will die. That's not the end of it. But we can do what Jesus is commanding us to do. So we see here, not only His authority, but it be. we see His instruction. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is known as the Great Commission. I received a book in the mail several months ago, and the title of the book is very simply this. Is the Great Commission still great? Is the Great Commission still great? Well, absolutely the Great Commission is still great. Because the Great Commission has come from Jesus Himself, and it is is the instruction, the mandate, the mission, to go... And make disciples. But in effect, the question should better be asked in the church today, is the Great Commission still great? Well, depends on who you ask. So what we see in this instruction, there's this little word, this transitional word, therefore. What is it therefore? Jesus says, go, because I am sovereign Lord, Over the universe, I have both the authority to command you to be my witnesses and the power to enable you to be my witnesses. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples. There are three components found in obeying the Lord's commands to make disciples. Go make disciples. Based upon my authority, my command, my enablement of you to make disciples, go. Go. Go therefore. The church is not to wait for the world to come to its doors. It is to go to the world. If we want to make the church of grace fellowship attractive to the lost people of Chester County, we gotta change a lot. We gotta change our dress. We gotta change our worship. We gotta change our message. We have to change the topic of our conversation. And what happens if the people come? They don't get the Gospel. They don't get the message. They don't get God's Word. They don't get the truth. They get some kind of a compromise to make what God established through the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ something totally different than it really is supposed to be. We are not to wait for the church to come. We are to go. The the phrase literally reads, having gone, and and the implication is that as you obey this command by going, which also conveys the idea of as you go, as you go, having gone, make disciples. The vast majority of Christians are going into the world to study, to work, to shop, to recreate, to do a multitude of things. But Christians today are not going into the world with this divinely authoritative mission on our minds. In fact, for the average Christian, the mission is nowhere In our thought process at all. We get up. We drag ourselves in the shower. We stumble our way down to the kitchen. We grab a cup of coffee. We angrily drive to where we're going. We make it through the day. And we've never once thought about the mission. We've never once prayed about the mission. We've never once saw a lost soul in need of the message of the mission. And we come back home and we detox from the world and we watch TV and we go to sleep and we repeat. And we wash and we repeat. And we do it over and over and over and over. To repeat what was said in week one which is absolutely clear, the vast majority of research indicates over the last 30 plus years, over 95% of professing evangelical Christians have never led a single person to the Lord. What does that say about as we go? Well, we're to go and make disciples... Secondly, we are to baptize. Verse 19. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word baptize literally means to immerse. Immersion is the most appropriate mode of baptism, not only because it's what the Greek word means, But more importantly, because that is the only mode that symbolizes burial and resurrection. Now this is important for two reasons. Let's read what it says here, Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so the physical act of baptism, where somebody is immersed into the water, identifies with immersion into the earth and his victorious raising from the death to victory over sin and death and the grave. It's what it most accurately symbolizes. But what it also symbolizes is that you and I are to die to ourselves as we are buried with Christ in baptism and as we are raised to walk in newness of life, we are raised to walk Pursuing his plans, his purposes, busy about the mission that he has set us on, going and making disciples. Now, I didn't understand that when I was baptized. I didn't understand that when I gave my life to Christ, when I understood that I was lost in my sin, that there was no hope for me apart from my faith in who he is and what he has done. I had no idea that I was going to be called into this Eternal, global, kingdom of God impacting mission never entered my mind. But that's not the relevant point. The point is, this is what Jesus has called us to do. Jewish groups long practiced baptism to symbolize spiritual cleansing. The Baptist, baptism of John the Baptist symbolized repentance of sin and turning to God. Therefore, baptism is a public testimony to union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and became the practice of in the New Testament. We see this after Peter's first sermon recorded in the second chapter of Acts. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. We see this at the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he was baptized. We see this in the baptism of the Apostle Paul, Acts 9.18. And in Immediately, when Paul recognized who Jesus was, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Being baptized in the Trinitarian name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the singular description of the persons of God, is not a required ritual for baptism, although it is usually incorrectly recited. It's not a ritual that must be followed or baptism isn't meaningful or didn't pass the test. It simply means that when we are baptized, we are being baptized into the name of God and it encompasses all that He is, all that He has, and all that He represents. We are baptized into the person of God. It isn't enough to just see people converted and be baptized. Making disciples requires that we teach. Disciples must be taught after they are saved. Verse twenty, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So we are called to a life of obedience to the lordship of Christ, and without teaching, we would have we would have little idea about what that actually means. So what the Bible tells us is that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are expected to make steady progress, and our Process of sanctification being made more like Christ. And so to do so, we must be taught the truth about who God is, about what God has said, and how we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. Paul would say to the church in Corinth and 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness... And the fear of God. How can we do that unless we are taught? We must be taught about who God is, what God has said, and how we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. We must be taught the expectation and the command that is found here in the Great Commission. Now, backing up, let us see as we follow through in our outline, three elements about the person of Christ, he says here, And the last part of verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The way this is phrased in the Greek, it makes quite an emphasis. And what it would literally say is, I myself, meaning I the divine authoritative sovereign Lord, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, who is given this instruction, Jesus, who is the, the divine authority that has the right to give it and has the power to enable it to be fulfilled and followed, He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the days. Always literally means all the days. All the days of your life, God is going to be with you. Now we say, man, that's a great thing because I really need God to be with me in the hard times and the sad times and the frustrating times and the times when I don't know how I can make it through another day. And that is true. But in the context of what Jesus said, He says, I am sending you out to make disciples by my divine authority and I will be with you as you are on your way going and In making disciples, I will be with you. I will be there to strengthen you. I will be there to equip you. I will be there to prepare you. I will be with you as you faithfully obey my call to go and make disciples. As you go into the world with this divinely authoritative instruction to make disciples, I myself am with you always. We live always in the presence of Christ. We are to witness in the presence of Christ and with the power of His divine divine authority behind us. Who is greater than Christ? No one. Who has given us this divine mandate? Christ Himself. Who stands with us when we obey His command to make disciples? Jesus Himself. I want to read a very lengthy introduction into this passage of Scripture. As you know many times, what is said carries more weight when it's being said by someone that we consider to be a real authority. And they're like raising your kids, you could tell them the same thing month after month and year after year and they go, yeah, okay, I expect you to say that, you're my parents. And then some other individual says the same thing and they go, wow, that's amazing. This is going to change my life. And the parents go, well, yeah, I've been saying that for as long as I can remember. So oftentimes, the person that delivers this message, the level of authority assigned to that person makes that message carry infinitely more weight. And so I want to say something to you that I am not saying. I'll tell you who said this after I have begun, after I finish reading this, but bear with me. It is quite lengthy. And I'm going to tell you, stick your feet out and let the truth trample all over your toes. Because this is going to sting if it doesn't sting. I question how um, I question how serious we are about hearing God's Word and its application in our lives. So here's what here's what is being said. Again, lengthy, please bear with me. Quote, If a Christian understands all the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but fails to understand this closing passage, he has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is the climax and major focal point, not only of this Gospel, but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense. It is the focal point of all Scripture, Old Testament as well as New This central message of Scripture pertains to the central mission of the people of God, a mission that, tragically, many Christians do not understand or are unwilling to fulfill. It seems obvious that some Christians think little about their mission in this world except in regard to their own personal needs. They attend services and meetings when it is convenient, take what they feel like taking, and have little concern for anything else. They are involved in the church only to the extent that it serves their own desires. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that the Lord has given His church a supreme mission and that He calls every believer to be an instrument in fulfilling this mission. If the average evangelical congregation were surveyed concerning the primary purpose of the church, it is likely that many diverse answers would be given. Several purposes, however, would probably be prominent. A large number would rank fellowship first, the opportunity to associate and interact with fellow Christians who share similar beliefs and values. They highly value the fact that the church provides activities and programs for the whole family and is a place where relationships are nurtured and shared and where inspiration is provided through good preaching and beautiful music. A favorite verse for such church members is likely to be John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. At a level perhaps a step higher, some Christians would consider sound biblical teaching to be the church's principal function, expounding scripture and strengthening believers in the knowledge of and obedience to God's revealed truth. That emphasis would include helping believers discover and minister their spiritual gifts and various forms of leadership and service. Like fellowship, that too is a basic function of the church because, as Ephesians 4 says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Adding a more elevated level, some members would consider praise of God to be the supreme purpose of the church. They emphasize the church as a praising community that exalts the Lord in adoration, homage, and reference. Praise is clearly a central purpose of God's people, just as it always has been and will always be a central activity of heaven where both saints and angels will eternally sing praises to God. After all, Revelation says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Listen, all of those emphases are thoroughly biblical and should characterize every body of believers, but neither separately nor together do they represent the central purpose and mission of the church in the world. The supreme purpose and motive of every individual believer and every body of believers is to glorify God. The mission that flows out of our loving fellowship, our spiritual growth, and our praise is that of being God's faithful and obedient instruments in His divine plan to redeem the world. In his great high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In His incarnation, Jesus glorified the Father by accomplishing His purpose and His mission by providing eternal life to those who trust in Him, by reconciling lost men to the God they had forsaken. Jesus' supreme purpose on earth was to seek and to save that which is lost. Therefore, it is also the supreme mission of Christ's church. The work of the church is an extension of the the work of her Lord as you sent me into the world, Jesus said, I also have sent them into the world. If God's primary purpose for the saved were loving fellowship, He would take believers immediately to heaven where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. If his primary purpose for the saved were the learning of his word, he would also take believers immediately to heaven where his word is perfectly known and understood. If God's primary purpose for the saved were to give him praise, he would again take believers immediately to heaven where praise is perfect and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on the earth to seek and to save the lost, just as Christ's only reason for coming to earth was to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Therefore, a believer who is not committed to winning the loss for Jesus Christ should re-examine his relationship to the Lord and certainly his divine reason for existence. Fellowship, teaching, and praise are not the mission of the church, but are rather the preparation of the church to fulfill its mission of winning the lost. And just as in athletics, training should never be confused with or substituted for actually competing in the game, which is the reason for all the training. That was written so eloquently by John MacArthur. Our mission is not to fellowship. Our mission is not to learn God's Word. Our mission is not to praise God. It's to take these components of our church and to make us better prepared to go out into the world as we go to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded. He is with us all the days of our life, as we faithfully strive to live that out. That is the mission of the church, and that is what brings glory to God, individually and corporately. To do less than that is to limit and restrict the glory our lives can bring to the name that is above name. Would you pray with me, please?